This is an ABC podcast. What would you call the generic name for the drug that we would call Panadol? Paracetamol. Paracetamol. What about Nurofen? Ibuprofen. <laughs> okay, what about the system that like involves your stomach and your bowels? What would you call that, that system? A gastrointestinal system. You usually say gastrointestinal and it throws me every time. Do I? I look, I was, I was just teasing you. <laughs> And what's the disease that this podcast's all about? It's the coronavirus, isn't it? Say it. COVID-19. I say tomato, you say tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure there are copyright infringements that are happening right now. Let us do a podcast all about COVID, COVID COVID-19, Coronacast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist and certainly not a singer, Norman Swan. It's Wednesday, the 17th of August, 2022. Norman, a couple of weeks ago, you and me, and mostly me, talked about the way that coronavirus spreads through the air, the importance of ventilation, but it's really hard to quantify how much viral, how many viral particles are coming out of your mouth at any one time because you can't see them. But a study has actually tried to do that and tried to figure out just how much is coming out of people's mouths when they're breathing, coughing and, and all that, that sort of thing. And importantly, how it might differ between the different variants of COVID-19. And different in terms of the size of the particle, because nobody will forget that 1.5 metres was the magic distance. The idea here is that, uh, you know, certainly if if somebody's got COVID and they cough in your face, you're going to catch it. Um, But the idea here is that you, and it's an out-of-date idea, is that you have these large particles which go 1.5 metres or 2 metres and so on with very little evidence behind it, and that's the high-risk, if you like, diameter around each individual. And as regular coronacasters will know, that's just simply not the case that you catch this disease by breathing in other people's air. So this research... It's not peer-reviewed, so we have to put in this caveat. It's a study of about 90 people, and it's following the shedding of the virus through different versions of different mutations of the coronavirus. So it's a very small sample, and it's not peer-reviewed, as you say, but this is a very controlled sort of study. You can't really do studies like this with large sample sizes. No, because there's just so much testing involved. And look, the bottom line is that alpha, delta, and omicron shed more virus than the ancestral virus. Some people call it the Wuhan virus. So that's one thing to say. The other is that fine aerosol fractions, in other words, the ones that do go into the air, hang there for a long period of time, can get circulated and you can catch it from, were five times more common than the coarse particles, which is the ones that you're worried about within 1.5 metres. Droplets sort of things. Yeah, that's right, larger droplets. And these are tiny droplets that they're talking about. So those are the dominant size of particles that are exhaled when you're viral shedding and subsequent mutations of the virus are shedding more. Now, in this small sample, they could not detect a greater amount of shedding of these small particles with Omicron versus Delta and Alpha. Although the highest shedder in their group was in fact somebody with Omicron, I think it was something like 18 times more than others. The bottom line here is it's yet another study which shows that small particles are the dominant problem with COVID-19. And it goes to the issue that we've been banging on about for a long period of time, and a lot of others have too, which is that ventilation is what counts here. You've got to have well-ventilated rooms, well-ventilated environments. And when the virus is running, you really want to be wearing 
good masks to control those fine particles from getting out. And that means N95s with the later versions of the virus. Without getting too tangled up in the nitty gritty of this, is there still a view that large droplets are a way that the virus can spread and that that should be considered in policy as well? I think there's no doubt that you do produce large particles and you can catch them within 1.5 metres. But if that's what you focus on and that's where your attention is and that's what the attention and that's where people's attention was directed in the early days of the pandemic and you still see the markers on the ground, that's going to miss the fact that you're much more likely to catch it at a, at a, at a greater distance in a poorly ventilated environment. All of the interventions are designed to dial down the risk. We can't eliminate the risk entirely, especially now that the virus is in in the community. We haven't shut out shut it out of the borders anymore. So, where is the sweet spot then? Because you you could you could say, well, if one point five meters isn't enough, then what is? Well, it's not a measure of distance. Would be the answer if you listen to the people who are involved in ventilation and aerosol spread, they're much less concerned about the distance you are from somebody than in the environment in which you're breathing other people's air and the likelihood that you're going to breathe it in. And that's much more about the ventilation and the circulation of air in the the room rather than uh, how far apart you are. And in the early days of the pandemic, we were talking about restaurants where you were two or three tables away and catching the the virus because of the way the air was circulating. There was the famous case of the choir rehearsing where, you know, in theory, they shouldn't have actually caught, caught it because they were separated, but they did catch it. And railway carriages, in theory, are places where you, you could catch it, and at home. And, you know, and the assumption is at home you're getting it because you're closer than 1.5 metres, and that's probably the case in some instances, but it probably is more that you're breathing other people's air for an extended period of time. And as you showed in a previous coronacast last week or the week before, which people can get a hold of, is that when you go around with a CO2 monitor crudely measuring the circulation of air, it's quite scary what, can, what levels you can get to and quite comforting how quickly it goes down after you open a window or open a door. Yeah, in, in many cases that ventilation, achieving that at least where I was, was actually pretty straightforward. Going on to something else that was a really big topic earlier in the pandemic, especially towards the end of last year when the vaccines were rolling out, we heard a lot about the risk, the small risk of heart inflammation, especially in young people getting mRNA vaccines. And there's now been some really robust research published that kind of quantifies what that looked like in Australia. Yes, this is a study done at uh, Monash Children's Hospital. So it's a single hospital study and it looks at their experience of uh, vaccine-associated myocarditis in adolescents. If you remember, we were talking about young people being more at risk than older people. And they had 33 patients, 80%, 82% in fact were boys. The median age, in other words, the age around which most people clustered was around about 15. And it was more common with Pfizer than Moderna, but that's not a surprise because more Pfizer was being used. And it was mostly after the second dose, which is what we talked about on CoronaCast. It took about three or four days for the myocarditis, in other words, chest pain, fever, shortness of breath, sometimes headache, muscle pains, rapid heartbeat. Those were the common symptoms. 
it took about three or four days for, in most people for the symptoms to appear, although they, the range was two days to 26 days. But the good news was the range of time in hospital was between two and three days. So they weren't in hospital very long. They were advised to take it easy for a, a fair period of time. And by the way, they did all the tests to confirm, to confirm this. And nobody got into grief from it, which was great. So there were no serious or long-term problems associated with this, but they did have the inflammation. And of course, if you are listening to this, dear listener, and you want to know more about it, Norman actually interviewed one of the research authors on the health report on Monday night. Yep, you can have a listen to that. So let's talk about different virus. People last week probably heard a bit about the Alangya virus being discovered in China. And of course, now that we've lived through two and a half years of a global pandemic, uh, people are really taking notice of headlines like this. But what really got me about this one, Norman, is just how commonly we did hear about viruses like this before 2020. We just didn't really pay very much attention to them. Yeah, th- this group of viruses is what some people thought would could cause a new pandemic several, you know, year, several years ago. The official name for this virus is Langya henipavirus, or LAV, and it comes from the same family as the infamous Hendra virus, which was passed from bats to horses and horses to humans and had a very high mortality rate discovered in Australia, and the Nipah virus. So these viruses have a wide range of virulence, if you like, on on people. This one in particular is carried by shrews. 30-odd people, it's a a a report from China, 30-odd people have had it since 2018. It doesn't seem to be spreading from human to human, so they're catching it from animals to humans, but not spreading to humans, which is what you would worry about. And in nature, Eddie Holmes, Professor Eddie Holmes, the University of Sydney, is saying you don't need to be too concerned about it, but we do need to keep on you know, the surveillance, presumably just in case it mutates, and that would be the worry here. Well, that's the whole thing. The name of the game is surveillance. The only way that we're going to know if slash when the next pandemic virus does come out is by watching watching for this sort of stuff and and making the judgment every time that a new virus pops up. Yeah, and these these viruses, these Hennepin viruses, are in bats, they're in rats, they're in shrews, they're across a wide range, uh, geographic range. So they occur in occurs in Australia, occurs in Southeast Asia, occurs in China, and um, there's only whilst there's a wide range in animals, there's only a small number or variants of these viruses which are known to infect people. In fact, uh, reportedly only about three. But that doesn't mean to say there aren't more. And as we go into other environments, where as we farm into previously native forest, we are going to become exposed to these viruses and people are going to become infected and you can get an exchange and the potential is for them to take off. And so far, they haven't in humans and that's a good thing. But that doesn't mean to say it's going to last forever. So that's a new virus and in, in other non Well, newly recognised virus is probably quite an old well, virus. Well, yes, but um, where I was going with that, my seamless transition was going to be that... <laughs> Sorry for interrupting your seamless transition, which I'm doing yet again. Carry on. Well, I feel, like, I feel like I'm making light of something that's actually really serious because polio, polio virus has been discovered in wastewater in New York. One of those viruses that we were really felt like we were on the brink of eliminating just a few years ago. So this getting into the sewage is almost certainly from the ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in New York, which is notorious for under-immunising their children. They had a measles outbreak a few years ago. And 
probably imported, maybe from Israel, and a vaccine-associated infection with polio. Um, the oral polio vaccine, which we don't use anymore, has live virus in it or live attenuated virus, and there's a very small risk of catching polio from it, and that's where it's sourced there. But it just shows you how vulnerable you can be when you are under-immunised. So this was the wild version of polio, the wild virus version of polio that would be really very, very serious. It's probably less serious with a vaccine-associated virus. Nonetheless, a worry. And just to reassure corona casters who've got young kids, the polio vaccine we use in Australia is not the live vaccine, not the oral one. We've, got, we've gone back to the injection. And actually on polio, there was a really, really good episode of our sister podcast, Patient Zero, all about the polio in the Asia-Pacific coming back. We'll put a link on our website to that. It's really worth a listen. Just cross-promoting uh, other podcasts left and right today, Norman. We are. Just, so generous. We're so generous. So giving. Well, go and listen to those other podcasts because we're just about finished. As always, send your questions to abc.net.au slash coronacast if you have them. And we'll limp through to next week. See you then. <laughs>